Hey everybody, welcome to this Rock TV Green Room. And we've got some amazing guests here. We'll do some introductions. As you notice, we have a special co-host today, Diane Hinchcliffe. So welcome, Diane. So Hi everyone, great to be here. And of course, our amazing producer, Elle. So we're gonna do introductions as we normally do, going backwards uh, from our guests in terms of reverse order. And uh, we'll start with Felice. Felice, where are you coming in from? What are we talking about? Hello, I'm Felice Eppelman. We're talking about hybrid work. I'm uh, talking to you from New York City. And the reason we're talking about hybrid work is because it's important, but also because uh, Julie Cantor, who you'll beat in a moment, and I wrote a book called Thrive with a Hybrid Workplace. Woohoo! And I'm trying to live the hybrid workplace. Catch me live here <laughs> in the car. Um, Julie, where are you coming from? What are we talking about? Um, I'm also from New York City. Um, I'm the other half of uh, the book Thrive with a Hybrid Workplace. I am a business psychologist and compliment police as a employment attorney. Oh, very, very cool. Well, thank you for being here. Um, Dave, where are we coming in from? What are we talking about? Hi, I'm uh, Dave Donatelli. I'm the CEO of Riverbed. I'm coming in from San Francisco, and we're going to talk about the digital experience and how to make it better for employees. Very, very cool. We've got a definite theme going on here, Don. Hmm. So, Marissa, where are you coming in from and what are you talking about? Marissa Thalberg, and I am currently in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I'm happy to join you to talk about marketing and chief marketing officers. All right. One of the coolest places on earth, SeaWorld Park. All right. Very cool. Well, with that, I'm going to turn it back to you, Elle, and we'll kick it off. All right. Three, two, one. <laughs> TV. As you know, this is our weekly web series, and where Ashar and myself actually air a show 11 a.m. Uh, Pacific every Friday, and we get eight of guests. We cover enterprise news, hot startups, insight from influencers, and much, much more. So today, I have my awesome co-host, Diane Hinchcliffe. Bala Ashar is out today, and Diane's the vice president and principal analyst at Constellation Research. He looks at leadership strategies for the new C-suite, the digital workplace, Internet of Things. And of course, if you haven't noticed, he's an internationally recognized business strategist, best-selling author, enterprise architect, and industry analyst, and even a keynote speaker. So he's widely regarded as one of the most influential figures in digital strategy, future work, and enterprise IT. Welcome to the show, Diane. Well, thanks, Ray. It's always great to be here. Uh, looking forward to another great show. Well, hey, thank you for being here. And today we've got some amazing guests and we are going to kick it off first with our friend, Marissa Thalberg, the Chief Marketing Communication Officer of SeaWorld Parks and Entertainment. Marissa is a globally recognized business strategist and brand building innovator 
room for inspiring teams to take brands to the new heights of consumer resonance, cultural relevance, and business performance. A pioneer of digital, social, and e-commerce marketing, he has orchestrated blockbuster product launches, unexpected cultural moments, and has moved from uncommon ease between industries like beauty and QSR, retail, and CPG brands, and of course, performance marketing, mass and prestige. So very, very cool. You can follow her at Executive Moms on Twitter, so or X now as they call it. So, yeah. With that, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Marissa, it's great for you, uh, you to be here. Thanks for for uh, coming, and you know your uh, reputation precedes you, obviously, and we, we know you very well. Um, uh-huh. And you know you, you have just such deep experience in working with some of the most amazing consumer brands uh, in the industry. And so I was hoping uh, you could you could kind of peel back the layer of what you know what do we really have to do today to build that connection with consumers to, to really foster trust and get authenticity. I was hoping you could go beyond the sound bites maybe a little bit and and tell us you know some of the secrets there. How do we do that? Well, I think what's challenging is that we're in this world where it feels so frankly overwhelming in terms of data and technology, and that's obviously where a lot of the, the, you know, the heat map, so to speak, of industry conversation takes us. And I think those are really important um, tools to understand the how. But underneath it, I think the fundamentals are the same as they've always been, which is to get at the essence of a brand and understand why it exists, what its unique value proposition is, who it's going to most appeal to, who it potentially hasn't appealed to in the past, but could appeal to, and bringing out its own best version of itself. I find that I've joined companies or seen other brands really try to grow through imitation by chasing a competitor or chasing something in culture. And the reality is I really think the best brands figure out who their best selves are, if you will, just like we as people are best versions of ourselves when we're bringing our true essence out and then figure out all the ways in which that can be monetized and developed for a continued financial success. Wow. But, you know, I mean, but you've done this at really, really different brands. I mean, yeah. like what's different about Lowe's versus Taco Bell versus SeaWorld versus, you know, I mean, these, these are like very, very different iconic brands that yeah. you pulled this off of. And Estee Lauder, right? I mean, what? how did you find that essence? So. I mean, I, I don't think it was a plan in foresight. I think you start to then see the connections a little bit in hindsight. I think that it's an idea that I've always really aligned with. And I didn't realize, I think until later, that it was a pretty famous Steve Jobs quote about creativity is just connecting the dots and that you kind of have to look backwards. I'm like, yes, that's that's it. So it didn't set out to be a determination to see how wildly different the industries and brands would be that I could work on. But as that started to happen, it became part of my own brand and my own identity and my own sense of wanting to challenge myself. And what became really interesting to me was to get past the obvious dissimilarities of luxury beauty to fast food tacos. I mean, anyone can tell you how those things are not alike. What's more interesting is as a marketer is to find where you can apply lateral thinking, which is to take certain lessons from one and apply to another. So for example, some of the best principles of luxury marketing became interesting to me in terms of, can you translate that to a mass consumer? And can you make people feel smart versus cheap if they shop off your lowest price products? 
Like, can you make it look great and then be affordable? And how does that become a whole new paradigm shift for how value is marketed in fast food? So that's like just one little very high level example of doing that. And then in turn, taking lessons I learned from Taco Bell and realizing it's a totally different form of retail, going from that to big box, big box retail and home improvement. But there are lessons. So that to me is, I think, the art of being a, a chief in a company in almost any role, but definitely as a marketer is how can you connect dots in new and interesting ways for your teams, for the business, and for yourself? Yeah, and so Marissa, uh, you know, taking that paradigm shift uh, and you know, being the chief, uh, let's take a look at the, the, the role of the modern CMO. Uh, you know, we see that the skill set has been continually shifted over the years from being a brand builder to, to you know, being, focusing on being the agent of growth for the, for the organization. Um, and, and now we see more shifts, uh, uh, you know, coming down the road. Can you walk us through what's coming? What, what skills does the modern C CMO really have to have? Well, I mean, I think that there it is a challenging role in the C-suite. Arguably, it, many people believe the most challenging because it's the most variable and it's often not completely understood by depending upon the CEO or other C-suite peers. I mean, if you think about it, in most organizations, a CFO's remit is pretty consistent organization organization but a cmo's actual title as well as the substance of the role the remit the accountability the way they're looked at the way they're judged has a lot of variability it might be chief customer officer chief growth officer chief experience officer chief marketing communications officer i mean there are all these different permutations and arguably they're all sort of getting at the same person who's playing this role, but just with varying degrees of responsibility and accountability. So number one, that's a, that's kind of cool, but also really a challenge. Um, number two is just this, this short-termism problem that we have in business in general. And, and what I'd argue can be the greatest gift of a marketer is being the one to see around the corner, to start being able to pull in what's happening in culture, in the macroeconomics, um, with consumer trends and start thinking about how to plant certain seeds now that may take a little longer to grow. But in an era of marketing where, you know, you get really pushed down to that bottom of the funnel because we've mistakenly called it performance marketing. I mean, <laughs> that obviously implies anything that's not that must not be performance marketing. And that's a, that was a terrible branding decision that we allowed to have happen in our very own industry. So I think there's a real need to keep pushing against that, to keep getting more sophisticated measurement that allows marketers to be able to see the whole picture and more than they see the whole picture, share that whole picture in a way that's meaningful and compelling to a board of directors, a CEO, any key constituency, really. Got it. Got it. You know, there's something very interesting about all that shift, right? Because we're finding that need for authenticity, that need for trust, right? You can't just measure that right away and say, hey, look, I showed up great on this trust barometer. Like that, that doesn't do it. Right. right. And along right. with that, as we add other factors like AI, right, we're going to get to some very interesting conversation points. You thought you could get away without talking about AI today. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> but what does a CMO have to know about AI right now? Not in just using it, but also the influence of what might happen. Or I'm just thinking about it from a programmatic perspective, like something might actually happen. You get, you're on the other end of someone's programmatic AI campaign and you're wondering why you can't make your ad buy. No, but, but it's all these things like that. 
what should a CMO be thinking about? Like a couple of top things that people should think. Well, I'll tell you, I do a podcast with an industry partner called Brand New. And the reason why um, my partner, Stephen, and I decided to do it was we felt that there wasn't actually enough conversation through the lens of actual practitioners. Like we are talking about this and needless to say, the subject of AI has come up time and time again. And, um, you know, there there is a responsibility, of course, for marketers to try to keep their you know, their foot apace with what's happening. But, you know, look at a couple of years ago where we were all kind of chasing a bit of the metaverse and NFTs, and now that's not the topic at hand. What we've discussed on our podcast is the fact that AI is not like a new trendy object. It's actually been around for decades. It hit a bit of a tipping point clearly with the arrival of ChatGPT almost a year ago now. It's crazy. Um, it's only a year ago. And I think what that allowed regular people to start to understand is how this what this really looks like how does generative ai enable us to get to this next generation of getting to solutions faster and so in the cmo community in which i feel really plugged in i mean i think what we're all trying to understand is it's not the end and it's not going to be the answer and yes there's a lot of fear about job replacement and how to integrate it but I, I like what one of my colleagues said. It's like having a really great MBA intern. So it might aggregate things for you or help assort it, but you're still going to ultimately have to solve your problems. And I think that's a helpful way of starting to think about it as a yet another enabling tool of technology. It, it there We could obviously spend hours on this alone. I mean, how it is used responsibly in society is it should be a very, very big concern that we all have. It's in the hands of the wrong players. We're... <laughs> We're going to really, really have some issues with that, um, knowing how to employ it into your company now. I mean, we're at the beginning of it in a way, even though I just said it's been around for decades. We're at the beginning of this chapter of it. Um, so I think just starting to experiment with it, um, maybe in just very, very simple ways, like naming a product or leveraging it for consumer insights. And it's going to continually progress from here. And the ability to do all the creatives, right? I mean, to do a multi-global launch, right? It was like, it would take you three months. You might be able to get down to three weeks now. That's what's so exciting. So Maybe. I mean, yes, just maybe not today, but eventually, yes. And how Eventually, we... yeah. Eventually. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, well, yeah. We can see that it's an amazing, amazing trajectory. And, 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 you know, talking about solving problems, you know, we, we see that, you know, we, we have a lot of global issues that have been taking place this year. And there's this real tension now between uh, workers wanting organizations to take a stand on, on certain issues, uh, customers reaching out uh, and pushing back on, on, on some of the, the social and political issues that, that, that has made 2023 really a crazy year. Mm -hmm. um, this, is, yes. this is, you know, a very difficult challenge for CMOs who, you know, can't really you can't really control that conversation. You can only shape it. You can only influence it. So, what what advice do you have CMOs dealing with these these hot button issues, these really tumultuous topics, trying to take a, a stand while de-risking these positions? What would you tell them? I mean, do you mean sort of in major socio political issues? Is that what you're absolutely yes, exactly yeah. I mean, to say these topics are fraught is an understatement and. I think um, for me, the first thing is to start with our basic humanity. <laughs> I'd like to yeah, think that's yeah. part of leadership that matters. Like it matters to me and it should matter to all of us. 
And then at the same time, you hopefully marry that with um, an enterprise responsibility for your organization and recognizing how your brand or company has historically played and what place it fits. So if you've never been a brand or company to comment on world political events, does it really make sense for you to start right now? Um, however, if you've been a company that has expressed a strong inclination to comment on other issues of DE&I, for example, then how do you make sure you're demonstrating some consistency in that? Otherwise, it becomes uh, questionable. And, and these things are slippery slopes. I also would say that there's a big difference to me in terms of how a brand and company communicates externally, um, because that's part of how the brand is representing itself and what it's it's saying it will and won't be to potential customers, how it might draw some in and how it might potentially alienate others. And those are really big uh, corporate and financial decisions, and they obviously need a lot of, uh, of care and how they're made. But there's a difference then in terms of how you talk to your employee population. And they should have a commonality, but not necessarily be identical. So you may not make a big brand statement, but you could express concern for how maybe um, a legislative issue or a, you know, a social uprising or something like that might be affecting your employee population. And that's honestly where I think the humanity part really needs to shine. Oh, makes a lot of sense. And uh, we're definitely seeing that across the board. Uh, quick question. We're looking at 2024. Uh, I'm going to give you some trends. You give me thumbs up, thumbs down. Okay. Uh, you already answered my question on performance marketing. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Performance marketing. Thumbs down, right? No, not at all. It's not a thumbs down. It's just a thumbs down to uh, the way it's kind of permeated our thinking so that we've we've made it an or to brand marketing. That's my thumbs down. My my thumbs up is, of course, we want to sell product. It's just understanding where it fits in the journey that is what needs to be reset a bit. All right. Okay. Well, let's start with programmatic advertising. Are we in, out? What do you think? Up, down? Oh, where okay. are we on that? These are, these are tough because they're not really yes, no questions. Of course. But, you know, there's a lot of issues in that marketplace, too, in terms of transparency, trust in agencies, accountability. Yep. So, I mean, a hesitant yes, uh, uh, but a continued yes. Metaverse? Well, I'm going to now turn that to a... For okay. now, I think it'll re-emerge re again, but I mean, I think Meta is giving it the Metaverse a thumbs down, so then that was a lot of money. <laughs> was a lot of money to rebrand a company. A Maybe we need to build something. Uh, influencer marketing 2.0, what do you think? Thumbs up. Thumbs up. All right, it's back. Um, mass personalization. I don't think it went away. I think it's just continuing to evolve. It's evolving, yeah. Mass yeah. personalization and AI. So with AI, one-to-one -one customer experience and marketing. Yeah, all that. Remember that term. Uh, <laughs> thumbs up to the principle. Thumbs down to the expectation that everything is now just oh, I can make everything personal because it's a lot more laborious than people realize. Still, mm -hmm. got it. First-party data. These are, these are such, they're not like thumbs up, thumbs down questions. I know, first I know. Party, I'm to I mean, first thumbs up, you used responsibly. You know, it's a, it's a trust. It's a trust issue. I, I don't think, and we're, we're, we as marketers sometimes violate that trust by over-marketing to people. But 
No, they'll, they'll vote back by saying I'm done. So it's it's a it's trade off. There's a give and take on that, right? The value right. exchange exists. That's People right. are willing to give you more information. That's right. When it ceases to stop, you can't expect that out of them because it's not a good. It's not a two way street. Right. right. So it makes a lot of sense. And uh, it's interesting. Um, you know, just to, to fit around our last topic, um, I work a lot with our C suite, and and all all the young people coming up in the industry, and the Gen Z, and and um, the millennials, they're hungry, super hungry for mentors, and there's just not enough executive mentors out there. They're so important. No. I was wondering if you could just just give us just you know tell us what some of your key mentors in your career were, and what made them stand out. Wow. Well, first of all, I have a lot of empathy for that point. I think that um, the reason why my no longer Twitter X handle is Executive Moms is because that was an organization I founded over 20 years ago, pre-social media, when I was newly a mom myself. And I just, I wanted connection and networking, not all, just personal networking even, because we need other people to kind of guide us, lift us up, commiserate, support. So this has been a very important theme in you know my personal life and, and what I've tried to give back and how I've tried to give back. Um, it hasn't always been uh, you know like a very formalized sense of having mentors in my career. I think it's been more informal and I'm realizing now that a lot of people feel that way too. And you start to wow. just build a circle of people that as you progress, that you can call on and you can ask questions to and event and, and have as a sounding board. And I think that's really what I feel lucky about is now a lot of those people for me are fellow CMOs. And that's been incredibly helpful or, or related, similar kind of, you know, executives. So for me, that, that's been great. And I've now been a formal mentor in programs like Adweek's mentorship program and more informally and and it's just something that um, when I think about how I want to leave an impact and leave a legacy, if people feel like I help them, then then that is the gratification for me that exceeds almost anything. Marissa, those are the magic words. We're mm -hmm. getting together a group of folks together as we do every year. It's called our Ambient Experience Summit. It's in Austin, February 26th through 28th. Consider yourselves invited. Mm -hmm. um, we'd love to have you there. So if you can make it. Yeah, we put together yeah. folks that share that same common bond. And yeah. really building those relationships and sharing those experiences. We're here with Melissa Thalberg, Chief Marketing Communications Officer at SeaWorld Parks and Entertainment. Thank you so much for being on the show and happy Thanks Friday. Thanks. You can follow her on Twitter or X at Executive Moms. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, you guys. Bye. Wow, Diane, amazing insights on marketing. I mean, yeah, and absolutely. of course, understanding brands at the fundamental it. level. Yeah, so, no about it. So, yeah. Oh, who do we have next? Look at this. Uh -huh. Uh, looks like Dave. It looks like Dave. Someone who's been in the industry for quite some time and actually an expert in the industry. So thank you so much for being here. So Dave, um, you are a you are probably one of the most um, experienced people in enterprise software and technology. So you're appointed to CEO of Riverbread Technologies in July 2023. But you've worked at places like Oracle, Hewlett Packard, EMC in very, very senior roles. So you're the EVP of the Cloud Business Group at Oracle, which is now one of the biggest areas of Oracle. You're also the EVP of the Enterprise Group of HP, which basically created this whole brand new group uh, in terms of you know, what's happened. And more importantly, you're now in charge of a very, very interesting startup. So welcome to the show. Tell us what's going on. And of course, you know, more importantly, you know, why, why Riverbed? So. Sure. Well, great. It's, it's great to be with you guys today. Uh, I'll start with the why Riverbed. Um, digital experience is becoming more important to our industry every single day. 
if you think about it, I happen to have kids, you know, they grew up completely differently than I grew up. It's all about digital experience and their, and their everyday life. And, and they're bringing their everyday life as they're entering the workforce with them. And so, you know, it's a very demanding generation who, who wants to have a seamless experience just like they do in the consumer life. And therefore, if it's important to them and they're such a large segment of our population, it's important to companies. And, and that's why I'm here at Riverbed. Yeah, so it's interesting. Uh, so I spent a lot of time working with both um, CIOs and CMOs and trying to say, how do we create this kind of seamless experience? Uh, consumers have, as you said, high expectations, even if it's, an, you know, you're a B2B product, all the consumer expectations that come over, the bar is super high. And if you're if you're not great, you're just an also rand. Right? Uh, all the data shows that uh, experienced leaders are at the top of the industry. They make the most profits. They they lead. Um, and and, and but if, if it was, it's so important, most, why aren't most organizations doing it? What, what are the challenges uh, you know, in delivering seamless digital experience to, to users today? I, I mean, what's stopping organizations from getting there? Yeah, simply put, it gets more difficult for them every single day. And both internal for how they run their companies, you know, the, the folks who work there and how they treat, how they treat their digital experience, as well as for their customers. Uh, we just recently did a survey, just to give you an idea to kind of back up some of the things you were saying. Uh, around 10 countries about digital experience. And 68% and of employees said they would leave their company if the digital experience didn't measure up uh, to, to really standard. And 63% of those people said, you know, they really put the company at risk, as you were stating, because as we all know in our consumer lives, in today's world, we want what we want, when we want it, and we want a smooth experience to do that. So the question is you ask is, why is this so hard to do? And the reason why it's so hard is because the technology, as we know, is changing continuously. You know, in the old days, when I first started in the marketplace, it was really, really simple. Uh, I worked at a company, I had a terminal on my desk. I could walk and see this glass room, which was called the data center back then. And everything was connected and easy. Just look at the last five years. You know, we've had the pandemic. Everybody immediately went to work from home, to work from Starbucks, to work from the beach, wherever they happened to be. Uh, and across that world, you know, things get really challenging. You have network connections, Wi-Fi connections, various applications. You've introduced cloud. So from this simple world, we now have a very complex world. And the more complexity you add, the more difficult it becomes to maintain standards uh, in terms of performance, availability, application, you know, um, availability all gets very, very challenging. Yeah, no, and you guys are doing some very interesting stuff. And when you think about, you know, how you actually develop and build those digital experiences, um, organizations should be thinking about a couple steps that they should get started with. So how do you, how do, you do that to like boost this digital experience? Um, and, and what are some steps to get started with? Yeah, I think the first step is, is uh, that most companies really want to get to is how do they stop the bleeding, if you will, right? How do they fix the critical problems they face today? And I can tell you, and I'm sure you guys have seen it in your life as well. I've been on more than one late night conference call where you have all different groups. There's some problem that's happened. You have all different groups on that call that goes on for hours and hours and hours trying to figure out what the heck is going on and how do, how do we resolve it? You know, I think all CIOs, uh, with, they tell you over a cup of coffee that what they really fear is the call from the CEO, what's broken, fix it, whether that's an internal problem or whether that's an external problem. And so where they start is how to get better information. So for instance, the products we make as an example, 
cover everything from your endpoint. Think of that as like a desktop or laptop or tablet all the way through your network and applications, you know, back to the data center. And what customers talk about in that sequence is what they call mean time to innocence. So if you're the network person and something's going terribly wrong, you want to be able to get on that call and say, I can prove to you it's not me. And, and you know, as you also know, and I'm sure you've talked about this for years, there have been attempts to do this. The big challenge that people run into is what they also call alert fatigue, right? So if I got a screen that's inundated with literally thousands of alerts, it's hard to sift through all that and figure out, okay, what should I really care about and, and what don't I care about? And then the third issue that people run into, among many potential issues they run into, is really having the skilled people. As I mentioned, these, these problems get more complex every day. And everybody's IT environment is more complex and more interconnected than ever before. And so to have you know, enough really, really smart humans who can traverse applications, networks, endpoints, uh, and figure out exactly where that problem exists, that's a really tough ask. Not only are they tough to find in general because they have to be so skilled, there's just not enough of them to keep up with the demands because everybody's digital information keeps growing. Well, let's this. Oh, go ahead, Brian. Sorry. Well, I would just say that you know when we talk to C-suite leaders, the the signature challenge they're having right now is, as you said, talked about, that scarcity of the people who will create these great experiences and keep them great. But you know, not just developing them, but but operationalizing them as well. You know, all the things you were just talking about, and so uh, we see that you know. IT staffing uh, and skills have basically been at, at a negative level, negative unemployment effectively uh, for a couple of years now, especially in all these high demand areas. Uh, and so what do you think organizations should do? I mean, is it going to get worse in 2024? And, and how do we leverage uh, artificial intelligence, automation and observability uh, to maybe not have to always depend so much on those skills? Uh, great point. So I, I think in short, it, I don't think it's getting better anytime soon in terms of availability of people. And, and as I said, even if more people come online, the, the problem scope and scale keeps getting larger, so they can't keep up. And, you know, AI is the fashionable term these days. Machine learning to me is part of AI. It's certainly a board level discussion. We have products today, uh, one's called Olivio IQ. And, and what that really does is collects all the data from these sources we've been talking about, again, networks, applications, endpoints and applies machine learning to them to actually fix problems through automation. So the whole idea behind it, of course, is instead of having to have a whole bunch of really smart people sitting around trying to figure out what's going on, we can use all the knowledge we've gathered over the years by doing analytics, using machine learning to figure out precisely what the problem is and how to correct it. And through that correction at the customer's choice, they can either have that done in an automated fashion, or they can actually take a final look at it, say, yep, I agree, go forth and do. So that what that enables really is to have their smart people, their, their very critical resource of smart people, only work on either the most critical problems and take away all the drudgery of kind of more day-to-day -day things that can be fixed, or in the case of critical problems, take away a lot of the time of data gathering and diagnosis and really just get to how do I implement a fix and make that happen. So it's actually real world machine learning, real world AI that's available today. And, you know, we see a lot of interest that in, in customers. You know, I, I had one customer tell me the other day, in their case, they have 155,000 employees. And using this type of technology, they were able to eliminate 30,000 trouble tickets a year. 
So that's 30,000 things through automation that, you know, the humans didn't have to touch and do. And, you know, that starts to obviously eat into that problem of both skills and obviously also improve digital experience. And doing that, they saw about a 25% employee satisfaction increase in how their digital experience was. Wow. Now, a lot of this is hinging on a lot of technologies. One of them is observability, right? And that's a, you know, interesting space in the market. Um, I don't know. Let's ask you about, about competitor. How, how Cisco's acquisition of Splunk going to change this market in the year? And why do you think this market is actually going to grow? So. Well, what, what they're saying for growth is growth. Um, you know, if you look at all the industry projections out there, is about 18% a year. So it's very high growth market. And really what the demand out there is to have fewer products cover more of people's technology space. So I was speaking to another large customer the other day, and they were, they were explaining to me that they're using actually 58 products in order to deal with their observability issues. Now, yep. imagine that, right? If you're the customer, 58 different products, the customer has the burden of trying to stitch all that together. They have support Which contracts. They do very well. yeah, exactly. right. It's just never going to work. So um, what the market's really demanding is fewer products that cover more of the space. That's exactly, if you look at Riverbed, I can, I can go into that if you like. This is exa exactly what we're doing here. And if you look at the Cisco Splunk uh, combination, it's really signaling kind of the same idea, which is how to get the industry to consolidate to fewer products that covers more space. I think ultimately that's, that's what that's about. Um, you know, as you see, I can just read from the public data. It's supposed to close about a year from now, and then they can get on to integration. But I think that's the whole intent behind it. It is. It is. Um, what was Larry's famous phrase? Sweets always win. <laughs> Sweets always win. And, always you know, win. It, it's funny you say that because I've used that, you know, since I've arrived here. As I, you know, I heard Larry say that over and over and over again. And he's right. That's why he's Larry, right? He's He's been Larry so Ellison. And um, in our case, that's exactly what we're doing is we're building a suite. Yeah, so, so uh, shifting over to uh, the, you know, the hottest topic of, of 2023, uh, which is uh, artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. you know, uh, we've uh, talked to hundreds of C-level <clears throat> officers uh, uh, in, in this year, and the theme has been very consistent. You mentioned it, um, uh, uh, Dave, in your, uh, in, you know, earlier uh, in, in the show, uh, is there's now a board level imperative to do something about delivering on AI uh, because it has competitive implications. If I can drive major improvements in cost cutting, if I can drive major improvements in growth, uh, or, or in, in this case, uh, uh, in your domain, uh, I can drive dramatic improvements in digital experience. What really should Fortune 500 and Global 2000 leaders be doing about AI in 2024 uh, from a digital experience perspective? What are you seeing? Yeah, I think, you, you know, as I mentioned, it's it's using AI to solve the problem of skill shortage and solve the problem of complexity. So the complexity is the environmental issue, the skill shortage, you know, we, we've talked about already. And by by using automation, which, again, the good news, it's here today. So it's not hype. There's actually products you can install and use today. Um, that, that's what they should do. I think at the broader scale, you know, I, I think we're seeing what I call the classic hype cycle. And that's that's why I emphasize products that are actually here today is that it's true. Every CEO, um, you know, I'm a CEO as well. It sits around a board meeting and the board wants to know what are you doing with AI? How are you using AI to improve the efficiency in your business? How's AI going to disrupt your business? I mean, every company on earth is going to have to answer these questions. Absolutely. And the real key, I think, is, again, separating kind of the hype train 
uh, to reality. And there is a lot of good products that are here now that can be used. And of course, they'll continue to improve. And I think that's really where we are in 24. I think the hype will start to calm down a little and we'll start to get the practical implementations that people can do. If I could just drill down for a second on what you said about complexity, which I think is really critical. Uh, we ask uh, uh, CIOs what their, their top uh, challenges are. It's cybersecurity, obviously. And the other one is complexity. And, and you've brought this up several times now, Dave. Um, mm -hmm. And, and uh, just make, make sure that we put a fine point on what I think you're saying is uh, artificial intelligence will help us really get into that problem and start coping, being more effective in managing complexity. Is that right? Yes, because what you're really able to do is take large quantities of data. You know, in essence, a lot of what we do are sensors, right? We're, we're gathering data all the time. And the real important thing is understanding what does that data mean? And then also, what do I do with it now that I understand what it means? And, you know, for, for humans to do it, and that's the way it's kind of been done before, is people would try and piece this puzzle together on their own. And again, in smaller environments and a less complex time, it worked. Maybe not the most efficient way, but it, you know, it got us through the day. And, you know, now you have to automate. I can tell you, you you've heard, I, I've developed technologies across the spectrum from chips all the way up through SaaS. And I always sat there at the end of the day and I was like, you know, it's a miracle all this stuff works together because everybody's developing these pieces yeah. separately. There's all these companies out there. No one really talks to each other. And, and it all lands on the customer in some form or another for them to make sure it works in their environment. And it gets more complex all the time. And, and really AI is, I think, going to be a key to enabling it to really flourish going forward. This has been great. We're here with industry legend Dave Donatelli. He's the CEO of Riverbed. And of course, we're talking about a very, very interesting space where we're bringing everything from SD WAN to like application performance management to observability and user experience and testing all into one place as these suites evolve. So thank you so much for being on the show and happy Friday. All right, great to see you guys. Thanks so much, Dave. Yeah, it's an amazing wow. time, right? Yeah, the experience is everything. And speaking of experience, um, we're going to talk about the employee experience and how it's evolving. Yeah, and when we definitely are, and we've got some amazing guests, and let's do a quick introductory. Um, I'm going to introduce you uh, completely. Uh, so give us some time. So we'll start with Felice, and I'll go to do, and I'll go to Julie. So. Felice um, is the co-author of Thrive, a hybrid workplace, step-by-step -step guidance from experts, along with uh, Julie Cantor. Uh, Felice is also uh, a principal in the New York City, New York office, uh, New York office of Jackson Lewis, and a former member of the firm's board of directors. She's also the co-author, as we mentioned, um, which is really talking about this ongoing debate overtaking product, uh, overtake, overtaking productive conversation in many companies, and it's really about what is the best-in-class employer uh, and how to get there. Um, so we've got a lot of experience. Uh, you've done this in terms of building policies. You've done this by leading the firm's hospitality industry group um, in terms of restaurant, lodging, and fitness industries, some of the ones that are most impacted by the pandemic. But of course, you speak regularly at industry leadership events about workplace issues. So thank you and welcome to the show. Thank you. And then we also, yeah, we also have Julie Cantor, uh, co-author of Thrive with the hybrid workplace um, as well, the step-by-step -step guidance from experts. She's been executive coach and management consultant. Um, and with her PhD, she's combined 20 plus years of business experience, graduate education, and psychological principles to facilitate growth for individuals, teams, and organizations all over the world. She's the founder of a firm named JP Cantor Consulting. 
And of course, this corporate consulting firm of hers works with clients across different industries, the media, entertainment, professional service firms, and financial services organizations. So welcome. Your Twitter handle is JP Cantor Consult. Welcome to the show. So thank you for being here. here. So cool. All right. Yes, All yours, I. So uh, I'm really excited about uh, this segment. Um, I, I'm just now starting to make my way through your book. Uh, you know, the uh, the pandemic and everything downstream of that has thrown us into this this future of hybrid work, where a large amount of our workers are not with us anymore. They are remote, uh, and we want to create equity and inclusion for them. Um, and, and and so I was wondering if you you know you have this 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 concept of intentionality uh, that's. Uh, that is really important to building a thriving hybrid workplace. Could you walk our audience through what you mean by that, what it is? I'll, I'll start, Julie. So by use of the word intentionality, we mean that you can't leave things to chance. You really need to plan. And whether that's a, a leader who needs to figure out how to make the most of the days that the team is in the office, um, leaders and businesses need to think carefully about how they want employees to work and, of course, where they want employees to work. And whereas everyone showed up every day uh, all the time in the past, today we know that's not true for white-collar knowledge workers, and we don't think it will ever go back to the old way. So intentionality means planning, thinking, planning, and thinking. Yeah, this is really important. And I think in your book, you talk about, you know, uh, also codifying standard operating procedures when you do do that as well. Um, and, and to me, I think that's actually very important because when you're looking at, you know, what, what this what it means uh, for this planning and preparing a hybrid work policy, um, what, what standard operating procedures are you talking about? Because I think they were all assumed before. Yeah. So uh, when we talk about a policy and remember, I'm a lawyer, I represent companies. And it's a good idea to let people know what your expectations are. And that's that's what a policy is. It's a guardrail so that people know what's expected, whether it's the number of days in the office, which Julie and I think is the wrong battle, but whether it's knowing where you should be working, how you should be working, how you should be communicating with your team, what your expectations are, and here are some legal advice, making sure that the policy accounts for the right for employees to ask for accommodations that may be required under law. This is a big issue in the world of work. And employers need to make sure that they're complying with workplace laws in evaluating when employees ask for accommodations. So let me just go into that a little bit more. An accommodation is required or may be required when an employee has a disability or a religious belief that requires that they be absent from the workplace. That's totally different from a situation where an employee says, hey, I'd like to be home more because it's more convenient for me. Um, that is making a deal, a side deal. An accommodation may be a legal obligation. And so the policy needs to make clear, you know, what the rules are so the employer can be able to say, no, you know, our policy is everybody comes to the office on a regular basis. You need to live within commuting distance. And when we have team meetings, your, the expectation is that you're here. Wow. That's very clear and concise. I was just going to create a new religion where you know, you couldn't eat chicken and the uh, day of rest was one Wednesday. So take that. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> That's awesome. All right. Julie, sorry. We can't, we, what, what do you think? So, What do I think about a policy? Um, yeah. Or just I, not, I, not, I, just I, that, I, 
the best approach? How do we get there? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, and this is part of the beauty of the book and why Felice and I came together. Um, just a side note, because I think it puts perspective in terms of what a reader can be getting out of the book. Uh, we came together because we have similar clients um, and they look th they are looking to Felice for something, then they're looking to me for another. And, and the book came together the day Felice said to me, I spent my career helping clients minimize risk. And I said, I spent my career helping clients grow. And so if you think about how Felice was just describing in terms of the policy, right, she's raising pieces about when people are looking for side deals, when there's potentially a legal issue, right? When you talk to me about the policy, I'm going to talk to you about living it. Um, and so it's everything from, and Felice said it well, that we have come to say that a conversation of number of days in the week, my line now is that's just a silly policy. Uh, coming into the, and it's moving a little bit, um, but this is where this piece of intentionality um, has come into, because it used to be when this was first out that the conversations were, we'd get an argument two days, three days, four days, one day, um, is it six days a month, whatever. And they've had a lot of pushback. You saw with the, you know, with the larger banks in the beginning, they said, everybody's coming back and people just literally didn't come back. Um, and so- many cases, yeah, exactly. As, right, right, and so, and so, what you've, what we found, and we're, you know, we're advising our clients is starting to look at the purpose, and so the policy, and it does need to be codified, but if you talk about living it, right, it's really, this is again the intentionality where leaders have to think about things they didn't used to have to think about, right? How many days do you need to come into the office, and so then you get into conversations about. What is the reason for coming into the office? The four of us coming into the office and, you know, Felice and I are there on Mondays and Tuesdays and you guys are there on Thursdays and Fridays and we never see each other. Well, it's like, you know, and how many times people have come into the office and everybody's on Zoom? Well, that's really just stupid. Um, well, there's some jobs that can only be done in the office, uh, and, and, but meeting with your colleagues probably doesn't rise to that, that level of function. That's not really your job. So I was wondering if you could, you know, we have two workplaces now. Most organizations um, now have two workplaces. They have one in the office and they have one remote. And they struggle now to have a, a common unified culture. Uh, they struggle. I, we've had uh, folks reach out to us to say, how do I do meetings? Do we always have a Zoom call uh, to make sure that, that uh, the remote people are included? How do we do things like, you know, agile, development uh, do, do do we leave zoom on all day so they can hear everything that's going on in the in the agile bullpen uh, or in the big stand-up meeting or you know so how do we really bridge that gap between remote and the office that's the thing that no one's really discovered a foolproof way of bringing those together so how do we start i want to start actually dion with taking issue with something you just said i'm sorry to remember respect i'm respectfully no, no, pushing back me. And when you said the piece about, you know, people just coming into the office just to be together. Um, and actually another theme of the book is about connection. I personally call it interpersonal glue. And if you listen to what some of the stuff Marissa was talking about, she was talking about it. And so, in fact, there is a purpose to coming together for this piece about non-work connections and building relationships and there is nothing like building relationships when we're in the same room together because if you and i like each other and we have a cont contentious issue that we are then working through we will work through it if you and i don't know each other and we have no again interpersonal glue um 
it's going to be a lot harder getting the work done. And so I respectfully pushing back that there's no reason. Well, for well, I think you can push back. There's no replacement for in-person. I, I, I think most people would agree uh, with that. Uh, it's just we increasingly see organizations have staff all over the place. They often they can't, they're so far away, or in other countries even, they can't come in. And you may never meet them. And that's the reality of hybrid too, also, right? So it's interesting. Yeah, and, and so what's happened in terms of the piece of culture, you know, culture is this amorphous thing. You know, I don't know what it means. And, you know, when we work with our clients about looking at culture, it's really having them look at their value proposition. Right. Felice will talk a lot about becoming employer choice, um, but really, what do they, you know, stand for? What do they value? And then, what is that going to look like in in the office? And the best ex and easiest example is an organization which says we value work life balance, and your boss is emailing you at three in the morning. And I totally have clients that are doing that. But so, what's happened in the hybrid world is that leaders need to be more creative about how to build these connections because you're not necessarily coming together. Now, one of the things we've seen, and I can tell you from talking with my real commercial real estate clients, um, is that, you know, one of the things when they see, um, see organizations cutting down their real estate footprint, they're in fact using that um, savings to do things like pulling these people together all the, you know, at one time, whatever cadence, right? Could be once a year, could be once a month, what have you, for building these connections. Um, and so they have to be creative. And, and again, so so just to give an example and, and just a note about the book, the book was written as a reference book. This is not a book that you need to start at page one and read through it. I don't remember exactly, 264 pages. Um, but we really did it with a sort of... Right? Um, where there's a content, table of contents. And so you can zone into the, um, the area that you want. But so, so there's a lot of tips. And so what are the tips um, for building this interpersonal glue is in the conversation that's, you know, to, you have a meeting from two to three is spending the first 10 minutes off task, right? Everything from, you know, any good restaurants, what movies did you see? How's your partner? Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, in, in terms of, again, building these connections. And some, some um, you know, leaders do it that they, they say that that's the first 10 minutes. Other, other ideas that people have is they literally have like, a, you know, sort of a, an icebreaker and it could be everything from, you know, what are the last two things you bought on Amazon? Um, again, building, be creative about building this interpersonal glue. You know, one of the I other, feel... yeah, I was going to say one of the other key themes is we talk about how important it is to train managers, to train leaders who may not be thinking strategically about how to engage their staff. And so, you know, we made assumptions in the past that leaders would figure out how to do this. It's tougher now. And, and managers could use some training on, on how to be better at this. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. And one of the things uh, I'd be remiss in in this conversation, if we don't get a chance to talk about the seven C's of leadership. So, and uh, as, as you mentioned, it's easy to reference into the book. I mean, just go straight into uh, the, the table of contents. Uh, but this pops up in the middle of this because uh, leadership changes, especially as looking at remote and hybrid work. Uh, so tell us a little bit about like, what, what are some of these 
Uh, I, what are the seven C's and, and, and how that leadership changes as in terms of how you look at each one of those C's? Um, yeah, so that's that's good test. <laughs> um, I think, you know, I think you know, one of the pieces about leadership is, you know, that I say is I had a job before COVID um, and, you know, in terms of helping leaders and organizations grow. And now they just have leadership challenges over and over again. And so seven C's are. So I'll, jump in, I'll, jump in, I'll jump in. Culture. Culture. Start with culture. Start with culture. Um, yeah. So culture is, you know, what I was talking about before in terms of what does it look like to take the time and think about the value the organization, what are the bigger picture, you know, statements? I mean, people spend lots and lots of money coming up with a mission statement, um, which is worth it. You know, the challenge is, is that how do you have the value proposition? Um, so, if you know, if you have a, you know, a marketing agency and we, you know, we value, you know, individual participation. Well, so what, so then let's tie that to your hybrid policy. Well, if we value collaboration, well, creativity in person or having some time to just walk by somebody's desk, that's a way of connecting your value of part of your culture to, again, your policy. But it's taking the time to think about things that people just, you know, normally just get up and go to work. Yeah. And the sentences are culture change, connection, communication, collaboration, compassion, coaching. Felice, is there one that you want to jump in on that you want to talk about? Yeah, coaching. I, I mentioned that before, but that is one that has to change a little bit. So when you've got a, a leader that's got some remote people who want to work in the office all the time, um, you have to train that leader to manage their expectations of, in terms of performance. How do they evaluate people who may be in different time zones, for example. Um, and they need to understand that there's this thing called proximity bias, which is simply um, favoring people because they tend to be more proximate, more close to you. They show up in the office. They know you're there in the office. And it wouldn't be right to favor those people even if it's inadvertent because the organization permits people to work remotely or on a hybrid basis. And so you have to make sure that leaders biases like this. So that's, that's, that's one important factor in terms of leadership development that that's new. It, so this is also a great point in terms of Felice bringing in proximity bias. And I will tell you the reality is, um, you know, if you're working with somebody and you've got an opportunity, you're going to walk down the hall. You know, Felice has got junior attorneys. Reality is if she's got a call with clients, she's going to walk down the hall and have somebody to come in. It, it is just a reality. Well, and Exactly. We've called that the 50 foot rule for, for like 30 or 40 years now, where you're by the time someone's more than 50 feet away, the, the chance of you collaborating with them, this falls right off. And so uh, I was wondering if you could share with our audience uh, specific ways that, that remote and, and in-office workers can better collaborate with each other. What can we, what can they, what, you know, what specific tips would you give them? Well, yeah, I, I, go ahead, Julie. I was going to talk about the ground rules for communicating. Okay. <laughs> I mean, yes. Yeah, so, so, you know, the, the piece about um, communication and collaboration are really sort of completely intertwined, where is there are many modalities of communication, right? 
complete verbal is just written. You then ask, answer the telephone, which if you're under 45, you need to remind somebody what a telephone actually is. <laughs> Maybe it's not 45. <laughs> you know, but there's Slack, there's email, there are mirror boards, there are tons of things. And so part of it is, is being mindful about what are the, the desired um, modalities and having a conversation about what are the best ways to collaborate. And one of the things that we see when working with clients is that they haven't taken the time to sit back as a team and to discuss what are the best ways to collaborate? How much do we need to collaborate? And so, yes, exactly. And the, the, one of the closest things, again, this is where technology has enabled us to live in a hybrid world more than it would have 10 years ago, right? Is that there are, you know, there are, first of all, in just simple ways, you can leave a Zoom all of our Zooms could stay open all day long. You can turn off your camera. You can call, turn off your video. And if I have a quick question, right, I just, you know, shoot you an IM. Hey, I got a quick question. Um, and it's that's one of the ways in terms of this sort of 50-foot role um, in terms of, and, and so it's sort of like office hours when you were in college that there's a there's a, um, an area where it's always open. And so we've been working with clients to have conversations with your teams. Um, and it can go everything from, okay, we're going to do it from 12 to 1. If you want to be eating your lunch, fine. You may be, you know, slacked, what have you. Two things like having a conversation of, if I need a really quick, small answer to somebody, I can send a Slack. If I need um, something which is really, really, really emergency, you can use myself, my personal cell phone. But right. really, you know, um, if this is something that's created, you know, we're going to use a mirror board. If this is something where we're sharing documents, but ha we're going to use Google Docs, what have you. And email is a whole yeah. other thing. As I say, don't get me started on email. <laughs> you just really have to be clear. You're right. I mean, if we're not clear about that, uh, expectations are unsent. People don't know exactly what to do. So, yeah. I mean, there have been times I've been in, you know, group facilitations and somebody's angry at somebody else because they didn't read their email. I was like, I don't read emails. <laughs> Look, you want me? Go on our Slack channel. <laughs> um, so, again, this piece about having conversations, looking at the task and then finding out the best way to communicate and the best way to, you know, that you need to collaborate, including these are times we need to be in person to do this. Wow, I'm going to be accused of communication bias, uh, channel bias. <laughs> Everything I've done, I do is on email, no Slack. How's that going to work? <laughs> no, this has been wonderful, very delightful. And uh, thank you very much. I mean, your, your book is out. Uh, it's been out for a while. So it came out March 3rd, 2023. Thrive with a hybrid workplace, step-by-step -step guidance from the experts. Definitely get the book from Felice Eckelman and Julie Cantor. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thanks for Happy having us. Use this reference Bible. I think uh, you'll learn a lot. Uh, That's right. We've been hybrid for a while, Diane. So, like, we we never we actually we've been virtual for a while. We we wouldn't know what to do if we were hybrid. So. Uh, exactly. Well, I think we've been virtual for most of our careers, right? So. I, I know. Like, people would be like, if we had a, if we had a hybrid policy, it'd be like you have to actually show up somewhere. People would go nuts. Like, this yeah, is okay. awesome. <laughs> exactly. Well, I mean, I, I think that's gonna be more and more the future. Uh, but uh, yeah, interesting. So another great round of guests, uh, Ray. I was. Uh, yeah. No. Yeah, what, what do you think? Uh, summarize, summarize the, uh, I don't know, summarize the three guests. 
<laughs> you get the hot seat. You get the hot seat. So. Yeah, yeah, of course. Well, I mean, uh, the role of CMO is one of the most difficult jobs, and I think AI is gonna is, is gonna challenge it in ways that that I still don't think the CMO audience expects. But I think Marissa did a great job, uh, kind of outlining what we've got to do uh, immediately in front of us, and and we have to be good. At, CMOs have to be good at a lot of different things. Dave did a fantastic job uh, explaining how. I think, especially from the operations perspective of experience delivery, people don't realize the day-to-day -day work. You have to keep your eye on the ball. I think every single day to deliver on experience, observability came about because we wouldn't do that. We'd roll it out there and we'd forget. You know, you got to you got to keep watching. You have to you have to have this unblinking eye, and AI will be that. I think is great. And then uh, you know, the, the, I think um, uh, Felice and Julie did a fantastic job. Uh, about the intentionality piece. We've got to really be more explicit and, and upfront about what our expectations and policy and what we're going to do about bringing remote and in-office workers together. Uh, and they had some great advice, so it was good to see. So I think that, you know, another excellent show. Yeah, I know. A lot of great insights. And of course, we'll be talking more to people uh, next week. Episode number 343, we've got Laura Baldwin, president at O'Reilly Media, Sunny Singh, co-founder and CEO of Beluga, and Sunil Gupta, author of Everyday Dharma, Eight Essential Practices for Finding Success and Joy in Everything You Do. It's going to be very, very cool. Well, hey, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been great co-hosting with you, Diane. If Absolutely. It's, Always, right? Yeah. Every yeah. Friday, 11 a.m., 2 p.m. Eastern. 11, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern. to catch uh, Friday on uh, Disrupt TV. So, bye, everybody. Yeah. Have a great weekend, everyone. Take care. Bye-bye.